The SolarWinds hack in December of 2020 is considered one of the largest and most sophisticated attacks known to date. The attack, which exposed the data of over 30,000 public and private organizations, was used as a springboard to compromise a raft of U.S. government agencies. According to experts, this hack could be the catalyst for broad changes in the cybersecurity industry, prompting companies and governments to devise new methods on how to protect themselves and react better to breaches and attacks. In this episode of Cocktails, we talk to a distinguished university professor and expert on cybersecurity, and we touch on some taxonomies and frameworks that organizations can apply to build their security. We also discuss how we can take a more proactive stance with regards to cybersecurity and take on some great practical advice to make our software products more robust and secure. Welcome to Coding Over Cocktails, a podcast by Toro Cloud. Here we talk about digital transformation, application integration, low-code application development, data management, and business process automation. Catch some expert insights as we sit down with industry leaders who share tips on how enterprises can take on the challenge of digital transformation. Take a seat, join us for a round. Here are your hosts, Kevin Montalbo and Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Welcome to episode 38 of the Coding Over Cocktails podcast. My name is Kevin Montalbo. Joining us from Sydney, Australia is StoreCloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Hi, David. Good morning. Morning, Kevin. And our guest for today is a distinguished university professor in the computer science department of the College of Engineering at North Carolina State University. She is a co-director of the NCSU Secure Computing Institute and the NCSU Science of Security Lablet. She's also the chief cybersecurity technologist of the Secure America Institute. Our guest for today is Laurie Williams. Hi, Laurie. Welcome to Coding Over Cocktails. Hey, thanks for inviting me. It's our pleasure. Um, so we're going to obviously be talking about cybersecurity, one of your core ex- areas of expertise. Can um, we, we start off by uh, asking the question, how can we take the uh, practice of cybersecurity from being a primarily reactive process to a proactive discipline? Yeah, I mean, what I could say with my experience over the last 20 years of working with security is the way to make it more proactive is for people to notice all the really bad things that are happening. Um, I, I don't see a lot of people doing making that transition like voluntarily. So when some there's a, a really bad thing that happens, then, you know, the awareness goes up. Like back, I think it was 2017, there was during Christmas time, there was a big attack on Target, the Target Shopping Center, which is huge in the US. Um, and then that awareness, like, you know, so I, I work with a uh, building security and maturity model, BSIM, um, and the BSIM folks do a survey, or it's not even a survey, they go out to companies once a year and really survey what practices the companies use um, by through interviews, by showing artifacts. It's not just like self-reported. They actually have to demonstrate what they do. And we analyze that data and like you see a jump up, like so Target changed the industry. Um, and so as things happen, then, you know, then organizations increasingly will think, I don't want to be in the news. I don't want, you know, we just had on the East Coast of the United States, a ransomware attack that took out gasoline, you know, so people couldn't drive their cars. So that will raise awareness. Um, so unfortunately, I think that the the transition from reactive to proactive is going to come with more and more of these big attacks. 
Um, and so then attack comes from being comes from being reactive to attacks on other other organizations. Right. Exactly. And and then the desire, like, oh, we don't want that to happen to us. And then mm. they start to adapt adopt some more practices. You know, and that is mm. what we say, you know, as we analyze this um, BSIM data, which is really the largest data set of cybersecurity practices done by organizations. It's the largest data set there is. Um, it's done out of Synopsys, started out being out of Sigital, but then the personnel moved to a company Synopsys. And there's 125 security practices that they assess. And, that, you know, we, we actually have access to the raw data and we're analyzing it. Um, and, you know, we see these jumps happen when these big incidents happen. Um, so mm -hmm. people will be more proactive. Um, another thing that may turn people to be more proactive, like there was just a, um, a big um, executive order in the US, US executive order on cybersecurity that came out in May. And they are prescribing what I would classify as proactive practices. And so like if, if the US government is saying, um, we won't buy from you unless you do these proactive practices, then companies will do it, at least the ones that supply the US government. And lots of companies supply the US government in some shape or form. Um, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm speaking very US-centric. The, um, the BSIM data is worldwide data, um, but I, I think that to some degree, the standards, the NIST standards, things that happen in the US relative to cybersecurity are spread through the world. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I think uh, the, the NIST standards which you refer to, perhaps we can go through some of these. I know you take a very uh, scientific approach and data-driven approach to uh, security. Uh, mm -hmm. So how does an organization go about systematically developing uh, prevention, detection and response patterns for their security requirements? Yeah, so for the security requirements, I mean, you know, one, one study that or one uh, angle that we took a number of years ago was to use a natural language processing um, algorithm to read the functional requirements of a, um, of a product and to match them up with the security controls in the NIST 853 standard. And so it would like look at, look for keywords in the, the functional requirements and then match them to the patterns and then suggest security requirements. Um, like for example, um, a requirement might be a doctor edits the patient record. And from that, natural language you know, requirement, which is functional, it's functionality that the product should have, this would say, okay, if the doctor's gonna edit a patient record, the doctor must be authenticated, the transaction must be logged. Like, so it'll tell the development team the associated security requirements based upon that functional requirement. Um, so you know, that, that's one way, but I, I really do think increasingly organizations are providing you know, pretty, pretty um, extensive taxonomies of security controls, which security requirements, that's, that's what they often say, use as security controls that companies can use and to be kind of exhausted, exhaustive um, as they're trying to be proactive, you know, in the prevent, detect, response. So response says, oh my gosh, we got attacked. What should we do? Like, that's not mm -hmm. that great. Um, detect is, you know, their vulnerabilities in there. How do we see if, how do we get them out before someone else finds them? And best case is when they're preventative. 
Um, and so are, there some, are there some blueprints to get uh, get companies started? Are there blueprints? Well, um, the NIST cybersecurity framework is a good way to get companies started. I guess some of the ways I would say a blueprint. Um, so that is sets a risk-based model. And so not all companies, you know, they're starting from different places um, mm -hmm. and they also have different risks. So like, you know, depending upon the product itself and the product that the company is producing, they, you know, would consider themselves higher or lower risk. The NIST cybersecurity framework does a little bit of that risk assessment. It's not that specific though, but it, it, it is good for getting a company started. Um, I'd say another couple ways um, to get started. So I mentioned the BSIM, the Building Security and Maturity Model. So it's a taxonomy of 125 practices. And the maturity model says there's level one practices, level two practices, level three practices. Um, and so the level one, so with the level one, so I'll, I'll tell you a competing way to look at it in a moment, but level one practices would be, these are the practices most organizations do. And then level two is and more advanced companies, level three is the most advanced. So if you're just starting out, looking at the level one practices of the BSIM is a good start. Um, there is another, so they had the similar origins, but there's another <clears throat> taxonomy called SAM or Open SAM, um, which is, comes out of the OWASP organization. Um, and they have level one, two, and three as well. And the MM is maturity model as well but they have a different tact. And what they're saying is more like it's prescriptive. Like you should do level one and then you should do level two and then you should do level three and you should develop a procedure to get yourself to level two and then to level three. So you should set your goals to increase the maturity. Um, so similar, but you know, similar something like 125 practices and, and, and a way to advance through it. So that means companies don't have to start from scratch. You know, they can, they can go and look at the types of things that are in these maturity models and start to say, okay, you know, we should adopt these things. And they're also pretty wide varying from developer practices, management practices, training practices, compliance practices, governance practices, or, you know, all in there. Um, so, so those are good ways. I think some of our listeners would be uh, familiar with NIST, for example, because uh, NIST, for example, in, in, in software development, publish vulnerabilities in, uh, you know, um, software fr uh, frameworks and, mm -hmm. and libraries. Right. Often used build process to right. identify potential security vulnerabilities and create alerts for those mm -hmm. in a proactive sense. But BSIM, I think a lot of people may not have heard of. Right. So um, it, it, it's it's a, an organisation, a collaborative uh, organisation, which meant people can join as a membership. So can you tell us a bit more about the organisation? Yeah, so that's where the two, the BSIM and the, the Open SAM are, they had similar origins and then they split. Now the BSIM is not, it's not membership or it's not what you just described. It's a framework where consultants from the organization can come to your business and help assess you and develop a plan. So that's one. Um, the Open SAM is where, so um, Open SAM comes from OWASP, the Open Web Application Security Project, OWASP, which is a nonprofit. And so that's more of what you're talking about. Um, 
you know, there, there are some other um, NIST and ISO standards. Um, I, I, but I, and I think that the, um, the NIST 853 security controls is also um, a good starting point. It's a nice comprehensive list. So I yeah. think any of those, um, I, I think that looking at the, unless, you know, if the organization wants to pay to be assessed to the BSIM, that's great. If they just want to look at what has been published about it and what, what, are, what are the 125 practices, that's thing, one thing. Um, OWASP um, Open SAM has more like spreadsheets you can download that help you develop a plan. And then um, the NIST 853 security controls. Um, all of those provide a good framework for people to get started. Another thing that I really like is, um, is again by OWASP and it's um, ASVS, which is Application Security Verification Standard, ASVS. And that's more technical. So that's saying like kind of enumerating 136, if I remember right, different things you should test for in your product. So it's, it's much more developer centric, not governance, not anything else. But, and so, you know, when everyone's trying to figure out like, what are all the things I should do? Starting from scratch and developing your own standard is not, not a recommended practice. You know, go to, go to some of these NIST and um, OWASP resources that are available. I, I, I was looking at your paper that you co-authored, establishing a baseline for measuring advancement in, in uh, science of security. I was interested in this concept of uh, establishing a baseline. And in in that, you mentioned that we need to uh, establish some scientifically founded design principles for building in security mechanisms from the beginning. Uh, What what do these principles look like? Yeah, so, I mean, so there are principles that have been around. So there's a a famous paper written by Saltzer and Schroeder back, I think, in 1976. Um, and it's full of de- design principles. And I can't, I mean, I think all of them are still valid. Um, and so I won't go through all of them, but you know, some like um, least privilege, which says every person should have the least amount of privilege possible. So design that in, um, designing, um, minimizing trust. So don't trust anyone, only give them things um, that they absolutely need. Um, defense in depth. So assume that the attackers are going to get through your first line of defense and make another, you know, make multiple lines of defense. Um, <clears throat> so a complete mediation is one where um, you need to check access. So like you continuously check that the person is who they say they are. Don't just assume if they log in, they are the person that they say they are. Like keep checking. So there's, there are, you know, a good 12 or 13 design principles that have been around for quite some time. And so actually developing mechanisms and frameworks to support people using those types of principles is important. So there's not really a need to develop more new principles. It's really to adhere to the ones that we know about. Um, But that paper that you referenced, uh, establishing a baseline. So um, I, I've worked with um, the National Security Agency, the NSA, for more than 10 years on a science of security project. And the, the basis of that project is that um, the NSA w- would like for researchers to be more principle-based. 
Um, a lot of research these days is very reaction, you know, so prevent, detect, response. A lot of the research can fall into the response. You know, they, the attackers just did this. Now we need to have like supply chain. That's that's the thing now. Um, we, you know, we had some big, you know, solar winds and some other big supply chain attacks. So now like that's the thing, but that's reactionary. That's, you know, response-based research. And NSA would really like us to be more prevention-based and, um, and, you know, sees the, the research community as not being as, as principle-based. And so that paper is about how do we, as a scientific field of security, report results so that other people can build upon our science. Um, and so, you know, that, that's why we're establishing a baseline. So speaking of which, you, you, you talked about supply chain being uh, one of the hot topics at the moment. In the news recently, uh, uh, President Biden met with uh, Putin and mentioned cybersecurity and cyber attacks and, and mentioned some lines in the sand. The, the lines in the sand, as I understand, weren't actually published as to what the lines in the sand were. These are the, the areas or entities which uh, we would consider um, yeah, a line in the sand. Which if you undertook a cyber attack, mm-hmm. um, but if you were to have a guess, what, what sort of uh, areas would you be imagining infrastructure and, and military, and obviously obvious candidates? But would there be some non-obvious candidates, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, so certainly, you know, uh, military and government. You know, like there, there are um, <clears throat> definite accusations, and I'm not sure, maybe even proof that. The, um, you know, when the, that the Russians tampered with the election um, and, you know, and got in and, you know, um, exploited Hillary Clinton's email, for example. And so that's that's a government and, and interrupting the political process. Um, and, you know, so then, you know, a non-government, you mentioned like non-government, non, but, you know, is the solar winds, which is somewhat government. So solar winds established, you know, a Trojan or some, you know, a hack that was able to get in through the supply chain and then opened up the doors for government, you know, the Pentagon and some other government organizations, as well as some big companies like, like Microsoft. Um, And so that that is a case where likely Russians opened up the doors to cause damage both at the government and the, you know, the industry level. Mm. Um, So and and even the you know I'm not sure how many of these things get across the whole world, but the colonial colonial pipeline um, that was believed to be people from Russia, and you know it's interesting. And I saw the um, the pres a president of Microsoft, Brad Smith, was mentioning um, in a blog that cyber espionage, just making money off of this, was a 19 billion dollar business. And the people who launched that um, colonial pipeline attack that, you know, caused people like me to have trouble getting gas said, you know, we really didn't mean to do that. We just wanted to make some money. So like that's that's kind of the next wave, like this economy of just causing these cyber destructions to make money. Um, And so. You know, I think that I'm not sure, of course, like similar if, if we don't if no one knows what Biden exactly said, it, it really spans all of that. Like what are nation state attacks at a defense level, at a government level that disrupts government processes, as well as 
harming citizens and companies, which which they've shown to do all of those. I'd like to ask a more uh, practical question, uh, on the ground type question, if you like. Security breaches are often discovered through log files. Mm -hmm. So uh, the question then becomes, what should we be logging in our yeah. application? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know, if we really want to be able to uh, find anything, should we just log everything? Yeah. Um, or are there implications for that as well? Yeah, and you know, so we did do some work with logging. Um, and, you know, one of the things we, we showed with our work was that a lot is not logged. Um, and so, you know, you know, we had papers like modifying without a trace. Um, so a lot of things aren't logged and logging in the general case in computer science has originated from debugging, logging to debug and not logging for forensics. So, you know, we, forensics by design is a new field. Uh, we coined the forensic ability, the ability for an or, uh, a product to enable forensics. Um, so, you know, these are all things that people do need to be considering much more. And so should we log everything? You know, not for sure, not everything. So um, disclosing data through logs is another attack vector. And so you have to be careful about what you log and not not log any sensitive identifiers like can't use the social security number in the us as the unique identifier because now that's sensitive data in itself so like in, in the in the general case so crud create read update update and delete um, when someone does those and, and view which is another thing that we determined so um is as long as you can say who saw something then you need to log that as well so some identifier of who did it create a read an update delete or a view um, you know is, is important watching for not logging so much that you create a new attack vector and it's it's hard it's actually hard to decide what to um, what to log and what are what are the data fields that you need to log um, so th these are not you know these these are op still open research topics um, when my students were working with logging, it was it was funny to me. It's one of my funnier memories as a as an advisor was they went through a medical application and and the requirements for the medical application and similar to the other product I I described. So what we were trying to do is to be able to read the requirements for a system, and then based upon some heuristics, recommend what should be logged. And so what my students were doing was, you know, looking at the transactions and coming up with the heuristics and then applying them. And, but they had between students, they had some disagreements. And I was like, come on, bring them to me. I'll resolve it. Like, you know, I don't know why you guys can't figure this out. And then they brought it to me and I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know either, <laughs> you know, and so then the three of us were like, you know, making our best guess. So it's, it's really not that straightforward. You can read a requirement and be like, hmm. So, you know, still work needs to be done. I, I do think that there's definite um, the potential for natural language processing to aid in the logging. What should, what should be logged process um, is th there's definite potential there. And then to watch for not disclosing information in the logs, not allowing your logs to be altered, you know, so they're write only, 
they're backed up, things like that. We're, we are a software company ourselves and software companies and, and, and uh, organizations which have a team of software engineers will often uh, create a culture of focusing on adding new features into mm-hmm. a uh, release. Uh, can that uh, culture lead to a danger if you're not if you're focused on features as opposed to fixing non-critical security issues uh, result in what you call I've referred to in the past as security technical debt right yes absolutely absolutely <clears throat> and um, there's not actually I, I did actually a keynote on a um, at a conference called tech debt it was one year ago so um, things could have changed, but at the time, you know, I looked for all the papers far and wide. Let me look at all the papers that address security technical debt, and there really weren't. So it's not it's not an issue that there has been much study on. But certainly, your company and most companies really do focus and reward the production of functionality, and you know, so the cognitive overload of typical software engineer when they're having to build security into a product and then running static analysis tools and fuzzing tools and getting notifications that components that they use have vulnerabilities, like getting all of these signs from all over the place really does cause cognitive overload. Um, And then, you know, can cause technical debt because more likely they're like, ah, this is too much. I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to produce my functionality. And so that human aspect of security is, is again, an area that needs a lot more focus so that they're getting the, the strongest signals. The engineers are getting the strongest signals of what they need to deal with so that they don't create the security technical debt and reducing the false positives, which a lot of tools cause uh, alerts with false positives. Yeah, and speaking of those false positives, I mean, like I mentioned before, we use uh, the the uh, NIST database to identify vulnerabilities mm-hmm. in libraries during the build process. Right. Uh, but you've also written about artificial intelligence being uh, able to potentially assist organizations deploy more secure software products as well. Uh, right, how, right. How- See that uh, in practice, people using uh, more and more using artificial intelligence to build security in. Yeah, yeah, and so a number of ways. So, like if you put natural language processing in the cat, you know, the AI category, I mentioned a couple of the projects you know that we've worked on, like what to log, being you know NLP, or um, what's what should your security requirements. So there's other people doing um, things like that, but there's a lot of also learning algorithms. Um, like something that we've done and a lot of other people have done is um, vulnerability prediction models. So based upon features, what, where should you look for your vulnerabilities? Like, you know, what are the signals that say there's, there are vulnerabilities here, you should look here. Um, so there, there are a lot of people um, doing that, um, you know, mining logs to find, you know, like, so logs are terabytes and terabytes and terabytes and you can log all you want if you never look at the logs um, then you know you might as well not have them and so like that's definitely an ai application is identifying the anomalous behavior in the logs is another ai i mean even what you talk about like so looking at the components that have vulnerabilities in the national vulnerability database i think that's what you're 
you're saying that your company does. Um, and that's like the, the most, I mean, the most rudimentary, I mean, that whole field, so it's called um, SCA, Secure Component Analysis, um, is, is very complicated. So the National Vulnerability Database is, in most cases, the beginning part. And so tool vendors in that space are reading, using natural language processing to read like bug databases and security advisories to identify vulnerabilities before they get reported into the National Vulnerability Database. So that's an AI kind of thing. And, and then another aspect, um, which is probably not so AI related, is people don't want to be notified if a component has a vulnerability, if that vulnerability has nothing to do with the functionality that they use from that component. And so like, you know, trying to identify that, um, which may require dynamic analysis is another aspect. But, you know, the um, AI in security, software security is an emerging field. I, I actually have done one keynote in that space um, in, I think, February. And I have two more this year talking about just that topic, the union of cybersecurity, software engineering, and AI. And what are people in the world doing about that? Um, and there's a, probably, you know, we do some, my group does work in that, in that space, that the union of those three areas and some researchers in Singapore do as well. And then in um, Luxembourg, so in Europe, but there's a lot more, a lot more that can be done. Like you say, the sheer volume of data which you're dealing with, whether it be log files or transactions or whatever it may be, mm -hmm. uh, it, you simply do not have any alternative other than, other than to use sort of some machine learning techniques. Mm -hmm. to yeah. So it's uh, it's basically, as you say, a necessity. Otherwise, those log files are used to uh, are trying to identify the cause of an event post the event, but right. not necessarily. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so like when you get to, I mean, there's really like so the classic case could be you know, it's a movie star in a hospital and it gets into the news, the news. How, how did that, who found that out? Look in the log files. So in one case, you can find out the nurse or whoever that found it. And that's in the log files, but you only looked because it was in the newspaper. And then the worst case is when you try to look and you can't even find out who looked, you know, there's no, there's no trace of who looked, but you know, if there's, like I said, terabytes and terabytes of log files and not a learning algorithm to identify, then, then it's a waste. And, you know, the analogy, credit card companies, like, if anything, we get more calls, like, you know, to just say, is this transaction really you? Like, that's really what we have to get to, is that, you know, we're being proactive like that, or you know something that that we've proposed in the past too is that like if someone looks at something, someone gets notified. There's kind of a chain of like uh, you know the chain of command where you know if someone looked at a patient record that has nothing to never been on the floor of that patient, never performed any service to that patient, someone should be notified right away. Um, I have a system that we've developed in a classroom a medical record system and in that system it's a fictitious system though it's quite large 
you could click on a button and find out anyone who's ever looked at your patient, your record. So then if you work in a hospital and you know, if I look at somebody's record, I'm not supposed to, they can find my name out by just pushing a button. Maybe you won't do it. So it's kind of a deterrent. If, if we have those types of actions and software, just knowing that there's transparency, you know, similar to like, you know, if you know there's a security camera, like I'll give a fictitious example of, you know, you have a supply room in your work and you go in on a Saturday, you could collect your child's school supplies from the supply room. But if, you, if there's a security camera, you might not do it. But if there's not a security camera and no one's around, sure, I might do it. Similar with, with medical records or other applications. If you think you can do it, no one will ever know. Or even if it's logged, no one looks at the logs anyway, then it's not a deterrent. But if you know, like, I could be easily found out, then you might not do it in the first place. Good point. Yeah. Laurie Williams, you've published hundreds of papers and, and, and the like, uh, but do you uh, publish on uh, social media? And if so, where and how can our listeners uh, follow what you're reading and writing about? Yeah, mostly Twitter from a professional standpoint, Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. And your handle is Laurie Williams? That's right. Yep. Great. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time today, Laurie. It's been a pleasure talking to you about cybersecurity. It's a big topic and you've written an overwhelming amount of material. It's, it's a, it was uh, very interesting uh, researching today's uh, uh, topic. Uh, it's a fascinating area and uh, I think something that we, we don't talk enough about. So thank you for coming and joining us on the program today. All right, my pleasure. All right, that's a wrap for this episode of Coding Over Cocktails. To our listeners, what did you think of this episode? Let us know in the comment section from the podcast platform you're listening to. Also, please visit our website at www.torocloud.com for a transcript of this episode, as well as our blogs and our products. We're also on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk to us there, because we listen. Just look for Toro Cloud. On behalf of the team here at Toro Cloud, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers!